Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am very excited about our guest today. First, we have Dr. Katherine Walker, who is the clinical lead for MedStar Healthcare System. And in this capacity, she oversees nine MedStar hospitals, palliative care teams, and a community health team. Also from MedStar, we have Zoe Plogger, who's a palliative care social worker, and she has led the bereavement initiative in partner with hospice. And speaking of the hospice, we have Bill Gammy, who is the executive director of Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care in Maryland. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, the impetus for this podcast is when Dr. Walker and I were chatting back in March about the horrible situation of patients with COVID passing away in the hospital, but their families couldn't be there. We were scratching our heads saying, is there a way that hospice could help with bereavement, even though the hospice never really took care of the patient? So that's my perspective on how this need arose. Would anyone like to elaborate on that? I think that, I mean, I'll start with it. Um, this is this is Kat Walker. Um, that is where, in the conversation started before that as people, leaders of our teams and the social workers on our palliative care teams were also speaking towards that distress and the level of distress from the teams um, on many levels. And then also for seeing the issues coming about that we would have difficult transitions of care hearing that hospice liaisons weren't being kind of brought, allowed into the hospital in some cases as visitor restrictions decreased and tightened up. Um, So seeing that this could really end up being just multiple landmines all over the place um, really helped. um, But the bereavement part was the part that really, I think, tugged at everyone's heartstrings and rose the level of distress even higher. Um, so I was super grateful when Lynn just sprung to action and um, engaged um, Seasons, who I think end up becoming um, a great partner and collaborator through this time. So um, I don't know if you want to speak to the Seasons hospice side, um, the problem and, and what you were seeing at that time, but it has been a helpful collaboration as we navigated these uncharted waters together. Indeed. Bill, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think this is an important collaboration? Obviously you do. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would uh, echo a lot of Dr. Walker's sentiment that we all were feeling this distress and knowing not only the experience that COVID was bringing to patients, but truly that experience that was making such a, a difficult impact on the lives that were being effective outside of that by not connecting with their loved ones. So, you know, at, at Seasons, you know, part of our mission and vision is really to do our best to make sure that we are honoring life and offering hope. And so when we looked at the ask here uh, and said, hey, we need to make we need to make an impact in our community to help families that are already dealing with such of the complexities of COVID that we need to help these families. And, and we have had in other instances community-based efforts that focused uh, on uh, men who have lost wives or uh, other populations that have specific needs when it comes to bereavement. And so really this aligned with a lot of those areas that we said, you know, here is another complex population that clearly needs help because of 
the challenges with loss in, in the complexities of COVID. So uh, it was a, a, a great uh, effort by the palliative care team to say, this is a, a group that needs help. And, and we were certainly happy to get the call. Yeah, boy, what a red hot mess this has been. So Zoe, maybe you could speak a little bit to what if, if Seasons and MedStar had not pulled this off? What would the consequences have been? Um, that's a good question. I think certainly one of the things that we were hoping to kind of interrupt a little bit is the the continuation of trauma. There's this like such a traumatic time. Um, we have vivid descriptions and pictures of what is going on in the hospitals for families to look at and obsess over while they can't be there at the bedside. Um, and then they have this loss that just kind of, the person disappears from their life and those normal rituals um, that we go through um, for grief and loss are not there. I think the idea behind this was to try and make some touch points along the way um, and catch people who were incredibly high risk for complicated bereavement um, and refer them to more support. But also if they were not ready to just have um, someone reaching out to them um, to remind them that what they're going through, the, the, both the physical and emotional symptoms they experience are normal parts of grief. Um, so they don't feel so lost and bewildered. Oh my goodness. And I guess for all three of you, is it working? What, do you, what are your outcomes? What, is your, what are your feelings on this collaboration? Are, are you doing good things? I think so. Uh, well, that's good. <laughs> we, it, we hope so. No, yeah. I think so. Yeah, Zoe, Zoe, Zoe has really led this um, from, and so it might be helpful too, is to say, is it working? And, and maybe what is it? So um, maybe before you describe how it's working, Zoe, maybe would you want to talk about like how the collaboration came together and then we can talk about what we've learned through this, um, maybe after people understand what it is. And, and I think it's been an interesting process. We haven't, a creative way to solve this problem together in partnership. Yeah, so the idea is that we have um, social workers, MedStar social workers who um, make these calls. Um, they're actually um, social workers who had been working in orthopedics um, before this um, and were furloughed or taking, taking PTO. And so this was a way for them to come back to work. Um, we trained them to do these bereavement calls. It's a series of three crisis support calls. The first, originally we were having them make the calls in the first one to five days. Um, the, the first call, do a second call in two weeks to four weeks, and then a third call anywhere from six to eight weeks later. Um, what we have done over this period of time is to see that to kind of watch how people respond to the timelines and we've kind of increased those out. Um, the end goal of all of this was to be able to refer to a support group, which is what Seasons is doing, providing that support group. Um, and one thing we've been really grateful for is their, their flexibility on that timeline as, as our timeline has changed in response to how, how we're seeing how people grieve. Mm -hmm. Bill, maybe from your end, how, how's it looking on your end? Well, I, I think, you know, the collaboration is certainly meeting the needs of, of many 
folks that have been able to be part of this community effort. But I think even more credit needs to be given because what it's also been able to do is open this up and really with the core goal of supporting the community. So it's not only those that have been touched by um, MedStar's team, we wanted to make sure that this was a, a community-based effort and really that um, anyone in having challenges and, and getting over, again, the complexities that come in the transition of life when you can't see that loved one, when you know the, the, the challenges that they're going through based on all the, the reporting and media and it, it continues to weigh on you as a loved one, um, and, and you and, and that loved one passes that that angst of that not having that closure and not having that ability uh, to, to do something that yet is, is very hard for all of us but but at some level uh, we were taking for granted which was was being by your loved one in, in their last days and helping you know share that love through their transition so really what it's done is it's just open up the ability for the Maryland community to be a part of, of managing and helping with closure and the team that's leading those groups really uh, does a wonderful job to reduce that guilt, uh, to reduce the, the, the pain that, that comes when you, you don't have that closure, which for us in our um, culture as humans um, is so important when, when a loved one is passing. So it's, it's not only helped the community of, of MedStar, but it's been able to touch so many others that um, are, are dealing with this, uh, this dreadful virus. Mm. You know, I've heard and read about hospices that will have support groups and bereavement care for family members whose loved one died suddenly, unexpectedly, maybe it was an opioid-induced overdose death, but do hospices generally provide this level of bereavement support when the patient has never even been on hospice, are other hospices doing this? I guess is my question, Bill. Yeah, um, I think it it certainly varies across the country, but uh, this is not a, a new precedent that uh, if if patients um, are not able to make service, or let's say someone even passes before receiving service, that hospices are extending an opportunity. However, I would say. Um, Seasons is, is a leader and because it, we are so mission and vision driven that we want to be a part of, of providing that perfect end of life experience and to us that doesn't just end with the patient that we're caring for and it also extends to those that maybe we weren't able to have an impact on from a, from a patient care perspective. So we want to make sure that um, Seasons in many ways is, is building uh, a, a foundation to support the community when it comes to managing uh, end of life uh, complexity. And so um, while others are doing this, I, I think at some level um, seasons and, and it's wonderful to have the support and the resources to make a deeper impact on the community. So if you look at us here in Maryland, I think there's um, about four uh, specific uh, tracks within our community bereavement-based programs to, again, help our entire Maryland community uh, manage through what can be so difficult is, is not only dealing uh, with the loss of a loved one, but managing yourself after that loss. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to wonder, do other people who work in the hospital 
know that hospices across the country, some, maybe not all, offer this kind of service. For example, does someone who works in the emergency department, when they have an unfortunate individual who's had an opioid overdose death, know that this is a possibility? So how can we get the word out? How do people access this support? I, I guess I, I can, I'm not, oh, go ahead. No, Dr. Walker, please. I, I was gonna say, I guess I can say that this has really helped increase awareness of that. Um, and we have, our health system has system level calls twice weekly since the beginning of this pandemic. And, and on each of the calls, we've been reporting about the bereavement partnership with Seasons Hospice, um, which I think has helped. I know I've gotten requests from people across the system for non-COVID related death bereavement support and just saying, you know, like, would you guys be able to refer, the, the place you're referring um, the COVID families to that have had loved ones die, you know, could, could we have access to that resource? Um, so I, I think that's something that this has really helped increase that awareness of, which is, I think, an, a great thing. Um, and then I, I think also the other helpful thing is I think sometimes our palliative teams don't all, I mean, I think we all know and value bereavement services being provided by hospice. And I think our palliative teams um, may not be even as aware that bereavement services are possible for patients that don't engage with hospice before their death. Um, I think we don't do a good enough job in palliative care of extending bereavement or extending that to patients that aren't part of hospice. So I think we can do better with that. Um, so hopefully that's helped raise visibility within the palliative teams and also external to palliative within our health system. Bill, would you like to elaborate on that? I think, again, Dr. Walker spot on and the any time that we can have a, an earlier discussion about the part of healthcare that that we continue to improve upon, but all know as an industry uh, that we have challenges um, in in bringing the right amount of resources at the right time to optimize the transition at the end of life and you know the the statistics are very well known and and 80 percent of medicare spending is in the last year of life and so i think as we look at that there are many instances where that spend is warranted um, but there are many times where those earlier conversations uh, need to occur and and i think if if family uh, had further families had further awareness that it's not only going to make a positive impact on that patient but it can help them through this um, those are the the types of activities that I think will continue to bring awareness and and help us all in in our focus on triple aim and quadruple aim mm -hmm. uh, it's been my observation through this entire thing that I believe palliative care and hospice by association will emerge from this COVID storm with even greater respect than we had before because i think there are so many times where it's it's an i don't know what to do situation and often the answer is palliative care and hospice so i hope you all agree with me there zoe maybe you could you have something to add to that yeah i wanted to just kind of go back to um you know do people in the hospital know about community level hospice bereavement support and i think um you know certainly I'm, I'm aware as a palliative social worker and happy to refer people to community-based hospice uh, bereavement support. But one thing that I think is really challenging is when you're meeting a fam with a family 
inpatient during an immediate medical crisis and then death, it's not really appropriate to do an immediate referral to bereavement support. People are not usually ready to engage with that, to engage with their grief. They're usually initially in shock and then just trying to normalize themselves before they can begin the process of grieving. And so I think one thing that our support calls have done is kind of extend the contact with the hospital where the death occurred for that period of time so that we can make an appropriate referral to support groups and prolonged bereavement support. That's wonderful. Zoe, while you're speaking, maybe you could address a little bit, why is this important that family and loved ones get bereavement support? Well, I mean, I think anyone who's been through the process of grief knows that it is a bewildering and isolating time. Um, it can have physical symptoms, it can have emotional symptoms, you can think you're sick. I mean, you just feel like the ground underneath you has shifted. And it's important that we care for that part of ourselves because our society, our culture does not know what to do with that. You know, anybody that you've talked to who's had a loss or who's going through a chronic illness, which in and of itself is a type of loss, will talk about the people who have dropped away from them, um, the friends they have lost, because people are not comfortable sitting with that sorrow and that grief. Um, and so, and so having a space where people can be told this is normal, what you're going through, and it's okay, and I'm going to sit here with you. I, I heard on another podcast recently that grief is something that needs to be witnessed. And I think that really rings true that people who are not seen and heard in their grief um, can sometimes get stuck in it. Mm. That certainly rings true. Um, so, and how much, how much harder now when we can't physically be together and it's just such a challenging time to for patients and families to go through this. And I think on the clinician side and our team side, early on sensing the level of distress, you know, I can't emphasize that enough that witnessing these deaths, like sometimes the clinical team are the only people there kind of witnessing this happening. And then, you know, some of our teams have been um, taking the uh, you know, monitoring uh, cardiac monitoring strips and our nurses are sending those in a bereavement card to the family so that they have the heartbeat of their loved one um, that passed. And, you know, just the, creating those memories or some connection back to their loved one um, to help be a part of that in whatever way we can has been helpful. But then I think our clinicians are kind of haunted by and had been haunted by then what happens to them a week from now or months from now that we don't have a way to circle back with them and our staffing with our hospital like a lot of other health systems has been all in completely focused on the acute care for these patients and i think to be able to extend this service would have been impossible without hospice partnership because we, one thing is to bring in non-palliative specialists and zoe um, it's her creativity and being able to train them up to do these screening calls is one thing, but they are not skilled to the level or available to like do these complex bereavement interventions that hospice is particularly skilled at. Um, and I think that having that partnership has been so key because we are able to pull in kind of creative use of social workers who have the um, ingredients to be able to really um, help screen and help 
um, identify these patients and then connect for referrals um, without taking away from our palliative care team's purpose and mission on the inpatient side. Um, but I think there's been like a per perceptible, like it's been you easily perceived deep breath from the palliative care teams knowing that this is happening. And I, it's been highlighted at the highest levels of our leadership um, saying, and, and look at what we're doing for patients. Like we are even taking care of them after we've lost them in our hospital. Um, it's been called out at our system level as something that just kind of gives everyone reassurance that these patients and families aren't out there on their own trying to figure this out at a time where support is hard to find in person. So I have two follow-up. So I think it great. Two follow-up questions that are on fire here. Back to your comment, Kat, about the, the staff in the hospital and the things that they're doing. My question to you and Zoe is, who is supporting those professional caregivers? Zoe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's give it to Bill. I don't know. <laughs> Do you have debriefing oh, sessions been a struggle. in the hospital? Or what, what can we offer those frontline people who must be also grieving? You know, I think, uh, yeah, I think they are. But, I mean, as, as palliative social workers, part of our, and as palliative care teams, part of our role is to support staff. So, reminding staff that we're available. Um, however, I, you know, people's ability to engage with that and continue working are kind of two separate things. Mm -hmm. um, so, I think that there's going to be a lot of needs in healthcare workers in the coming months mm -hmm. but if we but will they be able to engage with those needs and continue doing their jobs i don't i don't know um, i think i just added something to zoe's to-do list didn't i <laughs> well actually and i can i can actually speak to like our even before this happened um our health system was very focused on um wellness and we had actually put in place a wellness program um, because of the data related to burnout that is already existing in medical fields in general. Um, so the wellness program actually uh, has their work cut out for them now as it, thankfully it stood up before COVID. Um, it's interesting, they've been really creative to try to meet people where they are because to Zoe's point, no one has time to kind of, you know, within our palliative group, we've offered um, support groups for our palliative group, especially for the social work group, um, and not been well, totally well attended, but for the people that have joined have found it to be very valuable. Um, but for the frontline clinicians, I think normally we would be passing people in the cafeteria and they would grab us in the hallway to kind of debrief a tough case. And we're not having those interactions because people aren't out and about in the hospitals mulling around and eating in the cafeteria like we used to. Um, so I think um, two things that I would say is one, we have stood up a telehealth kind of cross coverage um, on call platform, um, which Zoe has been a big part of. And some of that is that telling people like we are available for debriefing tough cases. And Zoe, you might want to speak to like an interactions you've had just with staff calling and wanting to kind of think through a tough case. Um, so just making it available, whether people take advantage of it or not, at least it, we're there and, and available. Um, and then two, at the system level, um, our wellness program, they've actually um, created wellness stations within our hospital for people just to come and take a break in a safe space that's social distance and like have snacks and refreshments and just 
um, ability to kind of like remove themselves a little bit from clinical space. Um, and then they've actually employed this interesting chatbot technology where they have sent text out for screening associates. And then after it, it kind of, you get a text on your phone that says like, how are you doing today? And if you click through the questions, it will then give you resources for just-in-time well-being support and or referral to EAP resources. And we've had a huge increase in people taking advantage of those resources over this time. But I think to Zoe's point, um, also known that the tidal wave is coming because I think while you're in the emergency, everybody's hunkered down dealing with it. And I think the wave of the impact is, is yet to come. Wow. <laughs> Powerful work that you are all doing, just so impressive. And it's, I've heard so many social workers say, when you're in a sad situation, sometimes you just have to sit with the sadness. Um, so that's the extent of my uh, social work, inner social worker speaking there, but um, a very complicated topic. And I guess my, my last question that I have for both MedStar and for Seasons Hospice is, I know that hospice bereavement people are trained in detecting complicated grief where it's getting more serious than just like a support group or an occasional call will handle and they have processes in place. Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Zoe, I assume your social workers have a feel for that as well with those early screening calls? Yeah, we actually um, got a bereavement. I, I worked with Brandon at Seasons um, using their bereavement screen Mm -hmm. as a tool and then we kind of updated it for COVID and gave it to the social workers making these bereavement calls. And so they'll assess on each call, low, medium, or high risk. That's great, that's great. Bill, any comments on your end about that? No, I think it's an important factor in bereavement and that uh, just like anything truly in healthcare, um, you know, process protocol and, and best practices exist and, and bereavement and management of end of life is no different. So uh, it has been critical to make sure we're assessing the level of need uh, to ensure that those loved ones that have been impacted, uh, we can manage those challenges with them uh, to help uh, really ensure that there isn't any more damage done uh, based on the challenges that, that folks have. And I think with um, we have, you know, various levels of bereavement with individualized bereavement, um, but the community-based and the team or the, the community-based and the group setting really helps to, at best it can, normalize uh, a very difficult situation and to help, um, I think it helps us uh, really assimilate that we're not alone in this. And, and so sharing those stories uh, have helped uh, in a community-based setting, in a group-based setting, have really helped to to bring a lot that a lot a lot of that together. And so I'm excited that uh, this allowed for more folks to participate in these settings and really be able to uh, improve uh, what is a difficult situation, but make it the best that we can uh, with this strong collaboration. I have to wonder, with over 100,000 Americans having passed away from COVID. And with hospice offering camps for children, grief camps, are we gonna, is this gonna be the summer of COVID camp across the country? I don't know. Um, that's all I really had to ask. Does anyone have any closing comments? I would, as and for, speaking on the behalf of Marylanders, I would like to thank MedStar for their role in the COVID fight and Seasons Hospice for partnering with MedStar to do the very best by the community. 
Um, Kat or Zoe, anything, any last words on the behalf of MedStar? I guess I would just add that um, our call, you know, having frequent calls with Seasons Leadership and MedStar Leadership, just identifying, it's been a, a large value to, you know, our health system in our region, in the Maryland, D.C. region, has taken care of one in every four COVID cases. So by proportion, we are the largest medical provider for COVID care. And for Seasons being a very large hospice organization in this region, the shared partnership has been very helpful just to be able to identify barriers. The bereavement program, I think, is a shining example of that, but I think other examples have been, um, you know, deployment of a hospice um, provider in one of our EDs to help out. I think we've looked for a lot of creative ways to help facilitate liaisons and transitions, and um, the bereavement program is, I think, the best example of collaboration. But I think last week, I guess, leading on a, a big win of an example, um, the bereavement um, uh, lead at Seasons said that they had had several people referred to um, their program as a result of our screening. And as the, you know, the bereavement groups are offered virtual every other week, and actually several of them signed up for two different bereavement groups so that they could have bereavement support every week and not every other week. And I thought that was a great maybe way to end um, on my side, as far as just saying that that what what a win for those people who identified that they needed that much help and they were able to get it in a time like this. Um, so I feel like that helps us all sleep at night knowing we've done a good job to get these people um, that are suffering some more support. So um, just I can't thank Zoe enough for all the what she's done and vision and leadership in this area and appreciate the collaboration with Seasons for sure. Definitely. And Bill, any last thoughts? Just that um, I, I would say, you know, Dr. Walker and certainly Zoe um, embody the, the healthcare hero spirit of so many that have come to the call in a challenge that uh, none of us have ever experienced uh, in, in generations. And so um, it was very, and it still is very excited to be a part of it. Uh, we know that this fight isn't over, um, but we are in such a great place because of this collaboration to do uh, some great continued work in the challenges that we have today and, and those that we know will come. That's wonderful. Uh, I'd really like to thank all three of you. So Kat and Zoe from MedStar and Bill from Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. Again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this awesome podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.